0: Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear of cancellation by today's cancel culture. Well, at Hudson Valley Uncensored, we won't be afraid. My intention is to stay true to each of you, true to myself and to interview people who will also be true to our audience. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. I'm not a scientist. I don't have my MD or PhD. I'm not an expert on public health policy or vaccines. I'm just an American who tries to pay attention to the world around me. I used to believe that private corporations pretty much had a right to operate a business in any way without any sort of ethical obligations to anyone but its shareholders. It's not that I'm opposed to ethics. But I used to believe strongly that the market would weed out bad actors, and ultimately, the best corporations would rise to the top. But then I saw the power of monopolies, where the name Google has become a verb, and where Facebook has become this country's equivalent to the town square. When I think about the town square, I conjure up images in my head about the founding of our country, where people stood on literal wood platforms, and they could say anything they want whether it made sense or was totally outlandish. And they were cheered or booed depending on whether people agreed with that person or not. I used to live in Washington, D.C., and I witnessed all sorts of marches and protests on both the left and the right with people holding placards. I could never help but think during those moments, what a wonderful country we lived in. Imagine if that was censored. And if not censored, Imagine if our government stuck a warning label on each of the placards. I saw a political cartoon this morning from A.F. Branco wondering what would have happened if Christopher Columbus posted on Facebook that the world was round, or if Galileo posted on Facebook that the earth revolves around the sun. Both of their statements were considered radical during their lives, and Facebook likely would have censored them or slapped a warning label Urging the reader to visit the official site where the truth, quote unquote, the truth exists. There is something truly creepy and big brotherish when Facebook slaps a warning label urging us to visit the CDC website anytime anyone simply writes the word vaccine on Facebook, or when the scientists who helped develop the mRNA technology. Used to create the COVID vaccine, Dr. Robert Malone proclaims that the government may not be totally transparent with us, and his statement was booted off of YouTube. Might not all of this censorship make us a tad bit paranoid? I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I try to trust my government. But when credible scientists are being censored, and when our tech monopolies get to decide who has the claim on truth. It has the opposite of its intended effect, and it actually causes me to question the consensus, and it causes me to feel like I'm being gaslighted by Facebook and YouTube. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a journalist, and I know many of you in our audience are apprehensive about getting their children vaccinated for COVID-19. I certainly am. I'm not asking you to trust the government or trust our tech monopolies, but I do think today's guest makes a compelling case in favor of vaccinating our kids. Welcome to Dr. Marianne Buetti-Segoros, chair of the Department of Pediatrics with Northern Westchester Hospital in Mount Kisco, which is part of the Northwell Health System. Dr. Buetti-Segoros has been a pediatrics specialist in Mount Kisco and has over 28 years of experience in the medical field. She graduated from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical School in 1993. She practices with Westchester Health, also affiliated with uh, Northwell Health, at 36 Smith Avenue in Mount Kisco. Her patient office can be reached at 914-666-6655 for anyone looking for a new pediatrician for their children. For full disclosure to our listeners, Northern Westchester Hospital is a valued advertiser with five of our Halston media publications. The hospital has been a client of ours for many years, but regardless of its status as our client, I do believe that Northern Westchester Hospital is a trusted institution in the Hudson Valley. My own kids were born at Northern Westchester Hospital, and my daughter was just treated at Northern Westchester Hospital for a concussion where our experience on the pediatric unit was incredibly positive. Welcome to Dr. Buedi Seguros. Welcome Dr. Buedi Seguros. Thank you so much. Doctor, about 24 hours before this interview, I sent you a series of questions from our readers after sending out a survey through our digital and social media outlets. It was only just a few short questions. Have you, or do you plan to vaccinate your children for COVID-19? As of this afternoon, we collected 70 responses, and we had 32 yeses, 27 noes, and then a bunch of the others kind of fell into the various categories. Someone said, I have no children living at home. Someone said, when it has been thoroughly tested and features approved. One person said, undecided. Someone said, haven't yet, but will be forced to. Someone said, not sure. Someone said, maybe, undecided. Someone said, they are 1922, and yes, they're both vaccinated. Someone said, I will never give my child this vaccine. Another person said, my grown kids are already vaccinated. Another person said, undecided. And then in terms of uh, the next question, if you have vaccinated or plan to vaccinate your children, why? And actually, the survey I did was a little bit flawed because each person, whether they answered yes or no, was forced to answer each question. So, you know, a bunch of people said none of the above. But a large answer for that question was to protect my child against COVID-19. A few people said so that my child can participate in activities or travel. And actually, the greatest number said all of the above. So, you know, both for protecting their child and for just being able to participate in activities. Then the third question, if you don't plan to vaccinate your children, why? So uh, eight people said not enough research has been done. 16 people said, I'm worried about the long-term health impact on my child. Six people said, I'm not worried about COVID-19 harming my child, so they don't need to be vaccinated. So several people are just not worried about it. The fourth question I asked people, I said to people that we are interviewing you, I sent out the survey over a week ago, I believe now, a bunch of people sent some suggested questions. So I'm going to get into some of the questions right now and just start off with some basic factual questions. The first question, is age 12 still the age where children are permitted to get the vaccine? Correct. And I guess, why is age 12 the magic age for this? And are we close to lowering the age?
1: I think we're actually close to lowering it. But what's happening is the research is being done in stages. They're getting volunteers and then giving the vaccination and then checking for the immune response. So it all happened in sequential order. So right now, 12 and over was approved at this stage of the game. However, studies are still being done in the younger ages. There's a study going on between ages 6 to 12. And then they're doing studies in the younger children where they're varying the quantity of the messenger RNA to see how low a level can you give it and still get an adequate response that would protect the child. For most vaccinations, there is a standard dose regardless of age, but some people might be aware that years ago when it came to the influenza vaccine, there was a different dose for the younger child. And then they found that over time, it didn't make a difference. Now the same dose is given to children six months and above. It's no longer a half dose followed by another half dose. Okay. It's now just the same strength is being given. As a pediatrician, anybody who knows me knows it is pretty hard to get me to give something to a child. I hate giving out antibiotics. I like to give out better lifestyle advice about nutrition and good habits So for me to be recommending something like a vaccination, it has to be because I truly feel that the research has been done to benefit not only the child, but the child's family and the community at large.
0: Is there a particular vaccine that you prefer for children?
1: Currently, the ones that I think will be approved are the messenger RNA vaccines by Pfizer and Moderna. Those are the ones that I'm anticipating is getting the most research done at this time. It's funny because a lot of people have concerns because the vector, the way it's being done is through messenger RNA. And if I could have just two moments just to explain why I don't have too much concern with this vaccine. Please, please. So I'm going to try to simplify it. Think of it this way. Messenger RNA is kind of like um, the uh, message that came in the old show Mission Impossible. Mm -hmm. It gives a message to a cell. It gives it essentially like the recipe, the instructions on what to do next. When the right cell gets that information, it will then produce the outcome, which is the body itself creates the protein, which the body then recognizes as spike protein and then creates antibodies against it. Spike protein in a simplistic fashion, think of it as like the needle on an injection, Mm -hmm. If the spike protein is blocked, the cells can't get the viral particles. All right. So if we block spike protein by making the body produce spike protein and then produce antibodies against that, you will then be able to efficiently prevent the body from producing that immune response that is associated with COVID-19. Remember, once your cells are infected, there's a variable response. You can have a full-blown Infection, where you have the fever, the cough, the body aches, you could have um, hypoxia where there's so much blockage and inflammation in the airways that you don't have enough oxygen to deliver to your organs. And that's the most common emergency that we had seen early on that was causing people to die in our area. Um, By producing the antibodies, we could prevent this infection. Now, you have to remember, by giving this vaccination, we're doing a couple of things. One, we're preventing a full-blown infection. So for instance, if you are immunized and you have the vaccination and you make antibodies, if you come into contact with the coronavirus, although you may harbor it in your nasal passages, you breathe it in, it doesn't replicate. And if it's not replicating and infecting your cells and giving that inflammatory response, then you're not going to get particularly sick. If you happen to be one of the people, however, that has a robust immune response, Then you run the risk of being one of the people that gets hospitalized. There's a big variation in how people present with coronavirus infection. We see in a lot of the small children, they're they're essentially asymptomatic. In the beginning, especially, I was um, testing children for coronavirus and finding that children that looked like they had nothing more than a cold were testing positive for the coronavirus. The problem then became other people in the household were getting sick. Some that had um, more robust inflammatory reactions were actually getting particularly sick. We had babies that didn't look particularly ill, and then grandparents that were ending up in the hospital. That, it's that variation in presentation that is so concerning to those of us who practice pediatrics.
0: So is one of the reasons that is important for children to get vaccinated because of their ability to spread the virus to older adults?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, Brett. One thing that's been very, very concerning is that asymptomatic spread. And that mm. now, especially with smaller children, who um, anybody who has children knows, sometimes they cover when they sneeze, sometimes they don't, sometimes they wash their hands, sometimes they don't. They can wash their hands and then wipe snot on them yeah. instantaneously. Yeah. So the concern comes up that they could very easily transmit it. And we had many a grandparent who was trying to help out a family who had parents that were working from home, grandparents were staying in the house with them, and then grandparents were getting sick. The children were looking otherwise asymptomatic than the grandparents were getting sick. I understand so many parents are concerned because they think that their children might not get particularly sick with this virus, but it goes beyond just the individual. It also goes to the community.
0: And I guess another question then, um, I mean, just going back, one more basic factual question, though, then what is the death rate of children getting COVID? I mean, is it totally negligible or?
1: It's very small. It's very small. I'm trying to think of how the math went on that, because you have to remember this changes almost every day Um, in the United States. More than four million kids have had COVID. I think the last statistic I saw, there were about 15 percent of all the cases. That's 535 cases per 10,000 in the population. However, the death rate is significantly small. I think it's zero 0.08 0. 0.08 might have been the last statistic I've seen on that. I looked that up like about a week ago. It's very small death rate, but for each one of those children that has the coronavirus, the risk is how many people that they transmitted it to. It's almost like um, a case of dodgeball where the kid is it, and if the kid has the ball, they're able to repeatedly toss it and hit other people. Not everybody that gets hit is going to be knocked out flat on the ground, but they can still potentially then pass it on to the next person. It's that transmission where somebody's asymptomatic, doesn't realize they have it, and spreads it to the next person. That's the concern.
0: Now, should children who have already been diagnosed or who have the antibodies for COVID, should those children get vaccinated?
1: As somebody who I myself had COVID, I was a trendsetter, I had it last March. When we were short on PPE, I contracted coronavirus. And I even think I know, unfortunately, um, at the time we were trying our best to reuse PPE. And I remember taking care of some kids with 105 temperatures, sick, that looked like flu. But at the time we didn't have enough tests. They were testing flu negative, mm. And then I came down with COVID because of my status as a healthcare provider. And also I participated in a study also to check my antibodies repeatedly. I know that I had good antibody response for a prolonged period of time. We think children would too. However, we do not have enough information to say, will that antibody level be good enough to, if you come into contact with a variant? We do not know. And unfortunately it's just because this is so novel, so new, that's still stuff that's being researched. One thing that they did find is that natural immunity did fall in many people. That's not to say that if your antibody level goes to zero, if you came into contact with the coronavirus, you would get sick. That's not to say that there are other types of ways your body protects itself. But one thing that we don't know for sure is, do you really need that high antibody level in order to say you're immune? That's why, if you remember, a few months ago, people were all coming into the doctor's offices requesting antibody levels. And people that were sick with coronavirus that had documented covid We're coming back with no antibodies.
0: Oh, wow. They wore
1: away. So that's why the antibody levels don't mean too much for us, because we don't know if you have a very high level at one point, it's still going to be high. Does it wax and wane? Are we supposed to check levels every week? You know, and then if you hit a certain point, you get
0: vaccinated. We don't know. So my sister-in-law had COVID and my brother, right around her the entire time, you know, she was... Coffin in his direction, uh, you know, he, I mean, he wasn't too concerned about it just because of his personality, he wasn't too concerned about it and he never got it. And he's convinced that his allergies might have protected him from COVID. I don't know if you can speak to that at all.
1: I can't, but that okay. sounds very interesting because people that are allergic tend to have very, very robust immune response, even to things that they shouldn't be responding to. That's why they have reactions to things like, you know, like peanuts and dander in the air. You know, it's like it's almost hyperimmune.
0: One of our readers who answered the survey, they pointed to the Norway study that shows more young people developing long-haul COVID problems. Have you personally seen any evidence of this? And regardless, do you have any concerns about the long-term impact of young people developing COVID? And just to briefly, I looked at the Norway study website Science Norway by a reporter named Ida Irene Bergstrom. Uh, She said that researchers at Haukeland University Hospital in Bergen, Norway, they filed 312 COVID-19 patients for an entire year, 247 of them home isolated, while 65 were hospitalized. The results of their study were recently published in an article in Nature Med- uh, Medicine. At six months, 61% of all patients had persistent symptoms, and among those who home isolated, 52% still experienced various symptoms after half a year. The most common symptom still experienced after six months was loss of taste and smell. And 28% of the young adults with mild infections still suffered from this. Various percentage still struggled from fatigue and shortness of breath. And a certain percentage also struggled from just impaired concentration. Do you have any concerns about the long haul for young people?
1: Uh, Yes, of course. And that is because Just like some other viruses and other diseases that we see in children, for instance, mononucleosis caused by the Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus, that too has long, potentially lasting symptoms. The person who has COVID, I have seen several kids that have said that their sense of smell and taste is abnormal since last year, Mm. which to me is very concerning because people don't realize your sense of smell is crucial for you to you know, to be able to sense when there's something dangerous in the air. If you can't smell things like the gas on your stove being on, you are at risk. You, you can't smell fire. You are at risk. I do tell this story to patients and it's very true. When I had coronavirus, I didn't even realize how extensively I lost my sense of smell until about a week into it. I assumed that I, my sense of smell was diminished because I was congested until I started to cook something and I burnt it. And I didn't mm. even realize I burnt. It. I stepped out of the room for a moment. The smoke detector went off and I didn't smell the smoke, you know? And that was scary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Now I have patients that are asking me to send them to ENTs and we're trying to find people who are, have, might have some research, some some words of wisdom. Some people are wondering if using nasal anti-inflammatory drugs like nasal steroids would help. But quite honestly, that's still to be determined. You know, when we have kids that have mono. There are some kids that have mononucleosis that are asymptomatic in the same way that COVID could be asymptomatic. They're asymptomatic for mononucleosis until the next person gets it and starts complaining that they have a sore throat and then they have excessive fatigue. And that person then can potentially have fatigue that lasts up to several months.
0: The same survey respondent, they brought up the advisory committee on immunization practices, a presentation about myocarditis. I believe this reader was trying to point out that those who developed myocarditis because of the vaccine had it less severe than young people who may have developed myocarditis from something unrelated to the vaccine. Can you speak to this? Uh, First off, what is myocarditis and should it be a concern about young patients who get the vaccine?
1: So myocarditis is inflammation of the heart. That can be caused by many things, but viruses are a very common cause of myocarditis. So if we think about what the side effects of vaccinations are... For instance, any child that gets a vaccine currently, the parent or caregiver receives a form called the Vaccine Information Sheet that has a list of the common side effects. The majority of the common side effects of any vaccine are a very mild version of the actual illness. So, for instance, if it's the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, those side effects are going to include mild fever, the development of a rash maybe some uh, red eyes, maybe some congestion. Those are all symptoms that you get due to the inflammation caused by those viruses. In the same way, myocarditis due to the coronavirus can be severe or it can be mild. Once again, variable presentation. So when I saw that there were some cases of myocarditis associated with being vaccinated, especially in young adult boys, it didn't surprise me because... I would expect them to have a very vigorous immune response. So the fact that they had inflammatory signs of their heart didn't surprise me. I mean, it was unfortunate, but it wasn't surprising given how severe the myocarditis of coronavirus can be. Early on in the pandemic, there were people that were presenting to emergency rooms very early on when this was new that were mistakenly thought to have even heart attacks—they were mm. coming in with uh, shortness of breath, arrhythmias—they were coming in with you know signs of heart failure, and they weren't showing signs of heart attacks. And then it was found out that that was because the virus was infecting the actual heart muscle itself, in the same way that the generalized body aches were occurring in the large muscles, the skeletal muscle of the body. So was the smooth muscle of the heart—you know, the cardiac muscle—getting involved.
0: So, I mean, if we weren't concerned about the spread of the virus, and we weren't concerned about spreading it to older adults. And we're just looking at specifically the individual. Is there enough data about the risks for teens getting the vaccine? And really, how risky is it versus not getting it?
1: Well, because there is such variability in how severe you can get the coronavirus, there are some kids that got the multi-inflammatory systemic disease that looked like If you remember a few months ago, it looked very similar to Kawasaki's disease. So because that is a potential outcome, I feel strongly that the kids should be getting the vaccination because that's a risk I wouldn't want to take. I find it interesting that parents, for instance, go through a lot of trouble to block plugs to make sure their small children don't get electrocuted. And yet, I think the last study I saw was if you give children between the ages of two and four two days with just a plug and an outlet, 100% can remove it. That's 100%. You know, as parents, we try to protect our children and get them out of harm's way. You know, we try to prevent them from falling downstairs. Yet about every six minutes in the United States, a kid presents to the emergency room because they fell down the stairs, you know? So I don't think it's a risk. I think as as uh, pediatricians, we're always trying to do whatever we can to keep our patients healthy and to try to prevent them from getting illnesses.
0: And that is why, by the way, we are getting carpeting for our stairs. (laughs) So I could see that being a large concern for sure. Do you have any concerns about various variants that we hear about in the news, including the Delta variant?
1: Yeah, the Delta variant does concern me. It appears to be much more contagious and it tends to be more severe. And I believe a UK study, they find that the number of cases doubles about every two weeks for that variant, how it increases in the percent of the cases of coronavirus. So just for an example, if there was 5% of the cases in the UK two months ago due to the Delta variant, two weeks later, it doubled to 10, Mm. and to 20. So there is a concern that it will be the most predominant strain in the United States. And you have to remember, people who are vaccinated will not get severe COVID due to Delta. Okay, so even if you got the older vaccines that are not specific against the Delta variant, you will not be hospitalized, nor will you get severe disease from the coronavirus if you get Delta. So my concern is that it's going to be spreading like wildfire through the unvaccinated, the ones that have no antibodies and it's going to spread
0: quickly because we know this one is much more contagious. Now, as a public policy question, Should the vaccine be mandated and should teens and other children be prevented from participating in some activities, including travel, without getting vaccinated?
1: That's a whole other question. I mean, I personally, as a parent who likes to travel with her children, would not feel comfortable with her kids not vaccinated. And that is because I would have to worry about other people, especially now that masks off in many areas, If we were traveling, would my unvaccinated child then come into contact with somebody who looks otherwise well? Because remember, the vaccinated person who comes into contact with the coronavirus may not look sick at all. They're producing a significant immune response. However, they are still able to transmit it to others. So my concern would be that if, as a parent, I do think that children should be vaccinated against this if they want to participate fully. My concern would be that if they are not vaccinated, they're participating in the classroom, in sports, that child is put at risk of getting this because of this more contagious variant. And then you have to remember that person then in those first couple of days when they don't feel that sick could be transmitting it to another member, another person, or perhaps they'll transmit it to somebody for instance, who is vaccinated yet is on immunosuppressive medication. Remember, even something like prednisone used to treat inflammation due to things like poison ivy can affect your ability to fight an infection, including COVID.
0: That's a good segue into my next question. The son of one of my best friends, he has an epileptic seizure disorder and he's on medication that compromises his immunity. So we hear that children are less at risk of COVID, but would a lowered immunity either a, make a child more susceptible to catching COVID? And if yes, would it make the child more at risk from complications of COVID?
1: They would be at the risk of catching it just from the exposures. They would mm-hmm. be at risk of having severe disease because their body's not able to fight it well.
0: Should parents be afraid of the impact on the hormones and fertility of children, particularly girls, from getting the vaccine? And that's just something I've seen, You know, I've read about, and that was definitely a few of the questions from people who responded to the survey. And I've seen people talk about that on social media. So if not, do you know where some of these concerns are coming from?
1: I actually don't know where they're coming from, except I know a lot of it's just because it's unknown. If you think about what the messenger RNA particle is, it is something that stays in the cytoplasm of a cell. So if you remember from biology 101 from high school, you have a cell, it has um, an endoplasmic reticulum. It has Remember that? The ribosomes, it has vaguely, vaguely. Yeah, yeah, giving me some anxiety
0: here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so, messenger RNA never goes into the nucleus. So, it's never going to go into a cell where it can be spread and passed on. It's not possible for it to get into that cell line. It's going to be essentially attacked by your body. It's going to get the messenger RNA. Your body's going to create that protein. And then the messenger RNA is going to like disintegrate, just okay. like. You know in Mission Impossible. It's not going to be able to go into your ovaries. It's not going to go into your testes. It's not going to affect your germline. It should not be affecting your hormones. I mean, granted, this is all novel and I would hate to be found wrong in the future. But if I think of what the biology of messenger RNA and ribosomes and the production of proteins, it doesn't make scientific sense to me that that would be a concern.
0: And I've heard some, and I appreciate your qualification you know, at the end with that. I've heard some more outlandish theories. And again, I, As a rule for this podcast, I don't want to even prejudge anyone's uh, theory or assertion, but I read some theory from some people, you know, see the stuff, people talking about it, that simply by an unvaccinated person being around a vaccinated person, it could impact someone's menstrual cycle or have other health impacts. You know, is that totally outlandish? That's totally outlandish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Interesting. I guess I want to understand a little bit about how just within you know, a health institution, is there any sort of a uh, public policy pressure as an independent medical professional on how to treat or prevent COVID in children? And are your medical opinions coming from your best judgment or is there an official position of Northern Manchester Hospital or Northwell Health?
1: We have protocols for different aspects of COVID. For instance, the return to play for kids who've had COVID-19, because you know, we're trying to assess their cardiac health before we let them go back to aggressive play. Yes, we have policies for that. But for children, we have essentially recommendations that are based on the CDC guidance and then some other studies that come out. And you have to remember, the CDC guidance changes so regularly that sometimes something that is being publicized on one day is totally changed two days later. Mm -hmm. But one thing that we do recommend for our families is the fact that getting the COVID vaccine will also prevent not only illness among older family members, but also the spread to people whose immune systems might not be able to fight the infection. It also will make sure that your child is not one of the kids that has the multi-system inflammatory disease. It prevents their child from being the one who down the line is not able to smell normally. It prevents your child from being the one that maybe cannot think clearly because they have a little bit of that brain fog that some people are complaining about.
0: And I know that masks are not the topic of this discussion, but if I could, how effective are masks at preventing the transmission of the virus in children? Should children be wearing masks out in public you know, if they're unvaccinated and at summer camp, the summer or at school in the fall?
1: Well, right now, from my understanding, most summer camps are asking the children to be tested prior to joining the camp. So one thing that, you know, hopefully will decrease the likelihood of children that are at camp getting COVID is the fact that the children have been pre-screened prior to attending. Mm -hmm. Do I think masks would be helpful? Yes. And that's just because we know that kids tend to cough, sneeze, wipe their noses, wipe their eyes. I think they said that the average person touches their face about 17 times an hour.
0: I believe it. And I will tell you that my children are not allowed to touch their faces around my wife because uh, she's very into making sure that everyone's hands are clean and she's very into making sure that doesn't happen. So I I understand the importance of that for sure. I know there is a tremendous anxiety among some parents and even some adults for themselves about getting the vaccine. What can you say that might alleviate some of their concerns?
1: Uh, If I had to pick just one statistic, the fact that, Nobody that has the vaccine is being hospitalized and placed on a ventilator, I think is crucial. All you need is to have a little bit of a memory of March and April last year in 2020, when the ambulances were sounding all the time and people were being brought to, if you remember those images of Elmhurst Hospital with the coolers outside the cooling trucks for the bodies, If people are vaccinated, they will not be among the numbers of people that are hospitalized. That to me is crucial. Why would you want to risk the potential of being a statistic and getting hospitalized, especially now that the Delta variant appears to be more catchy and more severe? So if I had to pick one reason to get it, it would be so you do not become a casualty.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to add that I didn't ask?
1: There are a couple of diseases that I just think people should think about. Yes, coronavirus has been like the main topic of when people talk about vaccines lately. But people don't remember, even 30 years ago, the prevalence of things like pneumococcal disease, pneumococcal bacteremia. They don't remember haemophilus influenza. Back when I was in my training, the vaccines against those two diseases were not being used yet. And as a resident, I trained at Columbia Presbyterian. And, you know, if you talk to any doctor, we always talk about the good old days when we used to work hard in the hospitals. Babies very commonly were brought to the hospital with temperatures over 100.4 with lethargy. And the standard practice was to do a blood culture, a urine catheterization, putting a tube through their urethra to get urine and to do a spinal tap routine, and then place that child on intravenous antibiotics that had severe side effects associated with them, including deafness. That was protocol. And that was because babies were dying of these diseases. These diseases almost do not exist anymore because we developed vaccines against them. We talk about them as something from the past. In the same way, when I was in my training, people would talk about the use of mechanical ventilation for people who had polio. These vaccinations, these therapies are put into place to try to prevent the tragedies that occurred in the past. Children are lucky right now. We've eradicated so many diseases or have at bare minimum decreased the likelihood of them having a horrible outcome. Whooping cough, pertussis, still exists. It is seen as a chronic cough in adults. But we make sure that parents, when they're expecting, we make sure the family members taking care of that baby, are immunized against it. They get additional vaccines. That mom will get that vaccine with every pregnancy because we are so concerned about whooping cough, stopping the ability of a child yep. to breathe.
0: I remember okay? I had to get that vaccine before my, uh, my first child was born.
1: Yep, and you have to remember, the addition of that additional whooping cough, the vaccine for kids over the age of 11 and 12, and to be given to adults is a relatively new thing. It didn't occur in the past. You just got your tetanus shot every 10 years. Now we recommend this one with the whooping cough added to it. I do tell a story about whooping cough because it happened when I was in my training also. I was uh, working in pediatric ICU and I had a baby who had whooping cough about three or four months old at the time and was in the ICU literally stopping breathing, would cough and then whoop and then drop its oxygen saturation and we would have to be there to essentially make sure it was breathing again. So we used to do rotations for six weeks at a time. And then we'd go to the emergency room, work in different um, clinics. I came back a few months later. That kid was still in the ICU. Wow! But people don't remember, like nobody hears about pertussis, whooping yeah. cough. The only time they hear about it is when we're giving out that vaccine. And, you know, we have parents going, I have to get it again? Yeah, hey, you got to yeah. get it again. We're yeah. trying to prevent serious detrimental illness. You have to remember, even... Th- You know, 100, 120 years ago, children died of infections all the time. I think they said in the late 1800s, now granted, I'm going a little bit further back, 30% of children died before the age of five Mm. of infections in the world. That's
0: crazy. I mean, we
1: expect our children to thrive, to live. We don't expect our children to die of infections. That is why when I hear people, you know, hesitant on the vaccine, Remember, those of us who do pediatrics, our whole life is revolving around what we can do for the well-being of our children. It's all about the nutrition, the exercise, you know, getting vaccinated to prevent illnesses. I've heard people that are concerned about the vaccine, yet there are other things you could do too to prevent yourself from getting seriously sick with coronavirus beyond just washing your hands. Perhaps eating well, having good nutrition and maybe losing weight. Majority of the people hospitalized are obese. Okay. It is more difficult. So something as simple as losing weight and taking better care of ourselves would also decrease the likelihood of having severe COVID. I mean, I feel very strongly. I mean, I want the kids to go back to school. The kids were harmed by being homeschooled, not because parents weren't trying hard. My parents, my God, they worked so hard at trying to juggle life. Yet the social interactions that children need were destroyed. It was not enough just to have little pods. It wasn't enough to have the kids, you know, corresponding with other children just on platforms like Zoom. Mm-hmm. Kids need to be with other kids. They need to make mistakes in their interactions and learn from those mistakes. Absolutely. I think having the vaccination there so that all kids will be able to participate fully in school and activities is very important. Even if you're not worried so much about the physical likelihood of your child having severe COVID infection, if it comes to the point where schools mandate that you cannot participate without getting that vaccination, my God, I would hate for your child to be that kid that's not participating. Kids need to be with other kids. It goes beyond just physical health. Their mental health needs it.
0: Having... Two kids, again, they were home for part of the year. I mean, luckily in our school district, you know, they did go to school for much of the year. But, you know, my youngest one, you know, it was tough for him and it was tough for my wife to have to, uh, she's the one that spent most of the time. Actually, my dad also helped out with doing remote learning, that was really tough. And we're in a new, brand new school district. So, you know, it was very difficult for them to be able to, you know, meet kids. It was a tough year for them. So, you know, I, I agree, you know, that kids being around other kids is so important. I totally yeah. agree with that.
1: And if I could mention also one more population that really suffered during the COVID pandemic is the special needs child. Mm-hmm. Special needs children, had so much difficulty, their parents are true heroes. I've seen it over and over again, kids that have developmental disabilities, kids that go to schools that need all that support. And all of a sudden those supports were being done virtually, that was difficult. Kids were breaking down, kids that are not verbal, not able to understand what was going on, were breaking down. And then trying to get mental health services during the pandemic was next to impossible because once again, most of the people that were doing the services were doing it remotely. That was not what the kids needed. The kids needed to go on the bus. They needed to be with their caregivers they have at school. So it's so important for families to also remember that if you have friends and family that have special needs kids, please be vaccinated. The last thing they need is to get sick because they can't understand what's going on. They can't necessarily understand that they're not allowed to go on that school bus. They're not allowed to participate in things. It was very difficult. I can't even express how difficult it was. How many parents would be reaching out? Is there anything else you can do? And all I could do is give a list of names of places of services and hope that there is some way they could get an additional service to help them out.
0: Absolutely. Once again, Dr. Mary Ann Boetti-Seguros, she's the chair of the Department of Pediatrics with Northern Westchester Hospital in Mount Kisco, which is part of the Northwell Health System. She's been gracious to spend some time with us today. And also, you know, I want to thank you as well for just being part of the front lines as well. I learned today that you were among the first to be diagnosed with COVID in March of 2020. And so thank you for being on the front lines and and for keeping Westchester County and Hudson Valley safe and healthy. And thank you very much for coming on the show, Hudson Valley Uncensored. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much for doing this, Brett. I do appreciate it. I think it's very useful for our families and the community. Thank you. Thank you. It was very helpful.